work. It's a noun and a verb. We work at home, we work in the yard, and we work at work. We have jobs, what we call work, where we do work. Sometimes students work on homework at work. Work permeates our lives. It's part of the human fabric of life. And indeed, work is part of God's design for mankind. In fact, contrary to popular opinion, it was invented before the fall. Work is a good thing. Work is good, but the fall of man into sin has made it difficult. Listen to these words from Genesis three seventeen to 19. Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Some form of work is required of all humans, whether it be studying in school, raising children, or working that so-called nine-to-five job. Work and toil are expected of us. Now, somewhere along the timeline of history, this thing called jobs were invented. What we know today, Adam didn't start out with a job. He was just called to work. Now, jobs are what drives our society. It also drives a lot of elections. Jobs are segregated times and locations for work. Work in our lives is not relegated only to jobs, right? Just think of the the stay-at-home mom or perhaps the 12-inch high grass you need to cut this afternoon. Work is not just limited to cubicles, but for many Americans, for for many of us, jobs take up a great portion of our time, our focus, and our energy. A little bit into my past, a little bit into my history. Before seminary training, I worked for two years as an insurance auditor. I know what you're probably thinking, take insurance and auditing, and who wouldn't want to get out and go to seminary, right? (laughs) Actually, it was a a pretty good job, uh, with pretty decent benefits, decent opportunities for growth. Typical work hours were 9 to 6 with an hour for break, and we'd have a four-month busy season every uh, spring from February 1st to June 1st when the financials were due, and we typically worked from about 9 to 7, 9 to 8 o'clock at night with an extra 4 to 10 hours every Saturday. The main problem with this job, however was me. The job itself could be quite boring on some weeks, and other weeks could be quite interesting and engaging. My favorite time of the season was preparing financial statements. I don't know what it is, but I enjoy editing and making sure everything's done according to order. My least favorite part were the times of the year where I had absolutely nothing to do. In the auditing industry, that happens sometimes. Our numerous clients just don't have any work to give us. There's no financials due soon, no reviews. And so there were some times where I'd just sit around for an entire eight-hour day. One September, I think I billed 20 hours in the entire month. 20 hours of work for an entire month. That was the worst it got. And on those days when I had nothing to do, I felt owned. I felt like I had to show up at 9, leave at 6. I really kind of felt like a slave at at times because I just had to come, sit there, do absolutely nothing, which is the last thing I wanted to do, and then go home right at 6. Sun would be shining, 80 degrees, the Bell Golf Course calling my name. I couldn't even leave, not even half an hour early to go play some golf before the sunset. Given the sundry prospect of a week of work without work, my attitude often was sour. I think of all the missed opportunities outside in the sun, or even the missed opportunities I had at Grace Community Church, where I was attending to serve. I'd be frustrated, stuck in my cubicle, nothing to do. I should have been 
uh, uh, laughing at the irony of working by doing nothing, while all my, a lot of my friends who graduated college were doing nothing but working hard to find a job. I had become frustrated and discontented. I wanted to do something. It was in these days of, of boredom at work <clears throat> that I desperately needed a biblical perspective on how to handle day-to-day work. I so very much needed to know what God has to say about working a job. And I na- naively thought that God was pretty much silent on the issue. Maybe you're, maybe you're in the same boat. I doubt you're in the same boat of having nothing to do at work. Very few jobs have days where there's nothing to do. You're probably on the flip side, overworked. But maybe, maybe you're frustrated, discontented, or upset in some way at the job you have. Maybe, maybe the opposite of this. Maybe you love your job. Maybe you love it too much. Perhaps it overwhelms your life and you like it that way. Or maybe you don't even have a job. Maybe you're in school, studying. You've got other responsibilities. Maybe you're raising children. Maybe you're serving others, serving the church in your retirement. Well, you're in luck. The Bible speaks to all of these when it covers work. It's not just talking about the nine to five, but it talks about all aspects of work. God's word does not leave us in the dark. I love how sufficient it is. We desperately need a radical and biblical paradigm paradigm shift in thinking at work for the busy times and for the boring. So turn in your Bibles today to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, 22 through 4, 1. That's our text. And we're going to see that we need to internalize that God is our master in order to honor him with our work. We need to internalize that God is our master in order to honor him in our work. Now, as you finish turning to Colossians 3, just give a a brief context. And uh, actually, the immediate context is the youth group. In in high school, we're going through the book of Colossians. And uh, actually, conveniently, this was our very next text in line. And I was thinking of preaching from Ecclesiastes 5 on work, and I was like, well, why not just put the two together and focus on the youth group topic right here? Because it's it's, uh, very important for all of us. So that's how we got to this one this morning. Uh, The context for the book, Paul's writing to the Colossians, and he's initially writing to combat some some heresy potential, some heresy problems. Um, A man from the church coming, his name's escaping me, where is it? Epaphras, thank you, Bible. Epaphras came from, uh, from the hometown of Colossae to find Paul in Rome to share with him the news of what was going on. And so Paul writes this letter in return, first exalting Christ, chapter 1, uh, devaluing philosophy and legalism, the things that were, being, uh, that were attacking the Colossian church. And now in chapter 3, he's explaining how you are supposed to live as Christians. Paul had never been to Colossae. He was, giving, uh, he was writing this letter basically saying, look, chapter 3, this is what the life in Christ is supposed to look like. Beginning of the chapter, put these things off, put off sins. Second part of chapter 3, put on these things. Immediately before it, this is what Christian life looks like in the family. And now we get to chapter 3, verse 22. This is what it looks like at, works, at work. So let's read our text. Read Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. It spills over one verse. 3.22 says this, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. 
4.1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, how are we going to internalize that God is our master? How do we internalize this? We're going to adopt, we need to adopt four biblical perspectives toward work. And the first one, you'll see in your notes, I left you some blanks for you to fill in this time, a little different. But the first perspective is we need to work for the Lord exclusively. Work for the Lord exclusively. That's in verse 22. And before we dive in, I need to make an important connection and a disclaimer. You see the opening word, verse 22, slaves. My disclaimer, I am not going to promote slavery. I'm not promoting it in any way. In fact, slavery as practiced in America in past centuries was abominable and detestable. Precious African people were violently kidnapped from their homelands, treated brutally as animals, deprived of rights, separated from immediate family, and often worked to the bone. American slavery was despicable. Slavery in the days of Rome, while at times having strong similarities to American slavery, was also vastly different. Slaves, in some regards, were like employees today. In fact, slavery was so commonplace, in the first century, one-fifth of the entire Roman population were slaves, and one-third in major cities. Rome, it's even said, had four slaves to every free man. There were that many slaves working there. Slaves were the workforce. And slaves' masters were the owners of businesses, the heads of households. They were the employers. Slaves were the workers for the, for the households, the businesses. They were integral to, integral to a well-functioning home, much like domestic servants were in Victorian Britain. Slaves were simply a fact of life. And a slave's role in that society was not very much unlike an employee's role today in some ways. Society has changed and slavery is gone, thankfully, which is, and slavery has always been forced labor. Um, and it's gone, which is for good reason. But we do see some similarities, a couple similarities. Uh, first, an employee and a slave both work at the behest of their employer or their master. He, he performs his role as assignments are given. Um, both are owned in one sense, one nine to five and the other all day and all night. And one, the employee gets paid in money for their work from which they go home, purchase housing, food, and clothing. And a slavery is paid in essence by having housing, food, and clothing. Huge differences though, right? Huge differences. Slaves were bound to their job and their master for life in most cases. So you could potentially earn your freedom. It was possible. As an employee, unless you're contracted, you can quit whenever you like. Big difference there. You can always quit. Slaves could be physically beaten. I think your employer would go to jail if he tried that. And today you can quit. I already mentioned that one. You can go home each night. You have dignity. And you can also work your way to new roles. So the connections are not found so much in the similarities or dissimilarities, but in the principles for the slave's work ethic, the principles. Difference of application, of course, but the principles of serving the one who oversees your work are the same. Principles are the same. And we can even take it a little bit further and stretch the illustration a little bit. Strains the connection at times, but we can also apply this to the student-professor relationship some of these teachings. Uh, The professor has a type of authority over the student, and the student's expected to do work for the student. So SWAT kids here in the front row, if you're homeschooled, it's your parents you gotta gotta listen to here in this regard. Well, one other thing to take note of before we jump in finally to the rest of this verse is that just as we have many employees in our church, in the Colossian church, there were many slaves. 
there were many slaves in, in Christianity. And in fact, one third century writer named Celsus mocked Christianity. He mocked them saying that all Christians are made up of only slaves, women, and little children. He, there's no men in Christianity. It's all slaves, women, and little children. He's mocking us. Well, many, many Christians were slaves, which is perhaps why Paul gives them four verses when everybody else, masters and family members, each get one. So slaves were important, and they were important in Paul's mind to make sure they were working the right way. So now that we've made that connection, let's finally get past that first word in our text. It says, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. In all things, obey. This is the first and universal rule for slaves. Obey. Paul makes clear that their Christianity does not exempt them from this when he states, in all things. In all things. But it's interesting how Paul adds, on earth, with reference to their masters. He's clearly implying that we have another master, another employee, one who is not on earth. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The next little part says, not with external service. In Greek, the word is eye service. You might see a note in the NASB, or if you've got the ESV, it says eye service. And eye service is essentially slavery of the eye. Think about if you've got an office job where you work at a computer, or maybe you're in class at school, and you're doing something on your computer, and you've got a screen open. Maybe you're watching the Mariners game, or you're doing something else at work that you know you really ought not to be doing, and your boss walks by, and you hear his footsteps or her footsteps, and you quickly pull up your email account, right? That's, that's eye service, where you're making sure whenever the boss can see you, you're doing what pleases them. But when they're gone, eh, whatever, so what's, what's your work look like? Are you working merely to please your boss? Do you find yourself working harder or being more focused when he or she is around? God calls us to work for him. And as the text says it, it says, with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Not with eye service, but work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now sincerity here is an interesting word. We could just as easily translate it to simplicity simplicity, and I make that connection because there's an obvious um, antonym to simplicity, and that's duplicity, duplicity. Paul is saying here is that we are to serve a simplicity of heart, a single-minded devotion. We're not to serve with a duplicitous heart that at one moment serves our boss and at the next moment serves ourselves. So what's your charge as a Christian worker? You're to have a singular, simplicitous, sincere focus at work or school, with an exclusive eye to please God. You need an exclusive eye for pleasing God. Pleasing your boss is important, but it's not what's most important. Right? Pleasing God matters most. We need to train our eyes for the exclusive praise of our God. It's ultimately Him that we fear and serve. Remember, God knows and sees everything. His throne is on high. He sees everything we do. Job 37, 16 makes note that his, per, his knowledge is perfect. God is perfect in knowledge. We are right to fear him, knowing that no good deed or bad deed escapes his view. So unlike the earthly master, who does not see our deeds when he walks away, God always sees. Eye service to God is 24-7. It's 24-7. We must work for him exclusively. The second perspective that we need 
is to work for the Lord enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. We get that in verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. Back to my seminary days, I was no longer an insurance auditor. I needed some kind of job just to pay the bills in seminary. I got hired at Costco as one of those food hander outer guys, I would give the demo guys. Every kid's favorite person and every adult's per- they don't even know they exist, right? And so I was there, I would there, I would there and every day I'd have a different item to hand out. And every, I was everyone's favorite person whenever I had like jelly bellies. But some days you'd get stuff that just, why am I selling this? And one day I was charged with selling dog food. Right? Everybody's favorite sample, dog food. I have kids come up to me all excited, and then they'd see what it is, and they'd be like, oh. You know, now you're there for six hours. It's a six-hour shift. After a few hours, you start wondering, what does this taste like? <laughs> what does this taste like? So I did. I actually tasted one, and it's a little salty and kind of gross, and, but I realized it wasn't too bad. So when kids would come up, and they'd, I'd be like, oh, you want some dog food? They'd be, like, they'd be no, and I'd, I'd take one of my finger, I'd flip it in the air and catch it in my mouth, and they were trying to figure out where it went, because they didn't believe I actually caught it. But I'd catch it and eat it, and it was, it was okay. Um, that was humiliating. Another, another instance at Costco is selling Kleenex. Kleenex brand Kleenex, like trying to sell it. And I, everybody was like, are you kidding me? And they just walk, they either grab a box and walk away. Or they, they, I was, but I was a hero to five people that day that were desperately sick. And I was in the back corner of the store and they'd come up to me, oh, thank you so much. And they'd you know, blow their nose like... One, one lady, was, she, after she walked away, she felt so bad for me because she, she had dawned on her how awful it must be to sell Kleenex. She came back with a, a chocolate truffle. She's like, oh, I bought some truffles for my son. I'm on the way there, but I thought you needed one. Thanks. Now let me take another Kleenex. <laughs> you know, I'm like, do I want to eat this? But I was super thankful for that. And so, you know, there's all kinds of work that gets thrown at us. Um, and the, 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 the word here, that we need to work for the Lord enthusiastically. And it's actually, it was quite easy to do that because it was so um, humbling to do those, those roles that I was able to, you know, when, when we're humbled, we're the closest to the Lord. He came in humility. And so it was actually quite easy, easy to work enthusiastically those days. Other days, not so much, especially as an insurance auditor. Not so easy. But the word work heartily. In, in Greek, the word heartily is literally from the soul. From the soul. And the terms that we see translated of gladly, willingly, heartily, they don't do this term justice. It's not forceful enough. The idea here that Paul's getting at is to put your whole being into it or to work with your entire vital energy. Uh, One looser translation of the Bible, the J.B. Phillips version, puts it this way. Put your whole heart and soul into it. To get it down in one word, I I think works really well, enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. It is an action done from the vital heart of the person with all the individual's life force behind it. That's how God wants us to work. Now, there are two main ways to sin in regards to one's work, according to Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert in their book, The Gospel at Work. The first way to sin is to make work an idol. Hence, that work is an idol. It becomes your uh, primary source of satisfaction, or your work is all about making a name for yourself, or your work is ultimately about making a difference in the world, and then you value your work based on how you've impacted the world. People with this sin issue typically have no trouble being enthusiastic about their work. It's the second major way to sin in work, 
according to Traeger and Gilbert, um, that is the problem here with enthusiasm. That is to be idle at work. Not to make it an idol, but to be idle at work. Idleness, these authors claim, is not just about doing nothing, but about not caring about your job, being easily and often frustrated and not putting your heart into it. Idleness can be either laziness of hand or laziness of heart. And laziness is all too common in today's working world. Dictionary.com has an article entitled, 12 Insults We Should Bring Back. 12 insults we should bring back. And insult number five they'd like to see return is scobberlocher. Call somebody a scobberlocher. And they say a scobberlocher is someone who avoids hard work like it's their job. Next time you catch someone dozing off at their desk, hit them with this one. And so that piece of the article concludes. Why would we need that term to come back? Because it's such an issue today. Laziness, idleness, it's a hard issue. It's rampant. Hopefully not in the church. But it is rampant today. So I ask you, how enthusiastic are you about your work? If you internalize and fully grasp that you're working for God, that he's your real boss, how would that change your attitude? It would change big time, right? Whether you're, whether you're raising kids, doing school, or working at an actual paid job. Are you putting your heart and soul into your dentistry, say? Are you enthusiastically going about your work at Microsoft? For those at home, are you giving all your energy to your math homework? What about the mountain of clean clothes on the floor that needs folding? We've got a great reason to be working enthusiastically. Why? We are working for the Lord rather than for men. We're working for the Lord, not for men. In every task, great or small, God is the overseer of it all. If you believe in his sovereignty, which I sure hope you do, he has placed you exactly where you are. God's put you there in your position, in your stage of life. You're not in the wrong place. God has handcrafted your life because he wants you serving him exactly where you currently are. God wants you there. Women at home, don't work to please your husbands, work to please God. By doing so, your husbands will almost certainly be pleased. Students in school, don't work to please your teachers or your parents. Work and study to please God. By doing so, I bet your parents will be pleased. Men and women at work, whether you're working a cash register or working as an executive's registrar, don't work to please your boss. Work to please God. As Paul will say in verse 24, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. He's the ultimate overseer. For those working earthly jobs, God calls us to submit to earthly masters, our employers, just as he called slaves to submit to their masters. Is your attitude at work one that's pleasing to God in whatever you do? Are you putting your heart and soul into it, knowing that you are working directly for our Lord? Well, given who God is, Paul could have left his message at that. He could have just left it right there and said, look, God, fear God, work for him. As an apostle, he could command obedience and walk away, but he doesn't. He gives us a great incentive now to work for God, an amazing divine truth to cling to. In verse 24, it, this next verse, it starts off with knowing that. It makes it central. And this is perspective number three. Work for the Lord expectantly. Work for the Lord expectantly. Verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, 
knowing that, we're to work, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Friends, we have an inheritance coming to us. We have an inheritance coming. Think, think of the slaves in the New Testament. They had no inheritance coming. They received nothing at the end of the day or when their boss passed away. And, but what do we have here on earth that's of eternal value anyways? We have nothing here that we're going to take with us, nothing that continues on ahead, in material things at least. But as blood-bought believers, however, we have a reward coming to us. We have a reward. John Calvin puts it this way as our waiting for our inheritance. He says, We do not have the full enjoyment of our inheritance at present. We walk in hope, and we do not see the thing as if it were present, but we see it by faith. The Bible gives us lots of information about this reward. 1 Peter 1.4 says that it's an inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, and reserved. Nothing can take yours away or tarnish it in the least. Hebrews 1.14 directly connects our inheritance to our salvation. Part of our inheritance is the bare fact that we receive the fulfillment of salvation, eternal life, with God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and Galatians 5, 21 all speak of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Using that term, inherit the kingdom of God. For those on the flip side, the righteous, it then implies that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Being in the kingdom of God is part of our inheritance. From these scriptures and more, we see that heaven itself is our inheritance. Heaven itself is our inheritance. We receive rewards in heaven and have an eternal home there. Romans 8.17 makes it clear that our inheritance includes, and maybe this is even the pinnacle, being glorified with Christ. Glorified with Christ. We will share in Christ's glory. Now, how do we receive this inheritance, you might be thinking? It's actually not received by working in this life. It's actually not received by working here. Our inheritance motivates us to work for God, but our working doesn't earn it. So what does? Listen to Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Actually, why don't you turn there? It's only a few pages to the left. Just go a few pages backwards. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. It says this. I'm in Philippians. That's not what it says. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And we'll stop there. Given as a pledge of our inheritance. We receive the promise of our, our inheritance by hearing the message of truth and by believing it, by hearing the message of truth, and by believing it. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth. Do you want to receive an eternal inheritance? Then believe the message of salvation. Believe that Jesus Christ came as a man, lived a perfect life, willingly offered himself up to die in your place, to take away your sins. The punishment that was yours was put upon him on the cross, and you can be forgiven because of his work. 
He then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel message, and it's only for those who have believed this message and have thrown their whole lives into it, have given their whole lives to Christ that have an eternal inheritance. Is that you? You need that, not just for the inheritance sake, but for salvation's sake. For those of us who have believed, Jesus Christ is our new master. We work for him exclusively. We work for him enthusiastically, and we also work for him expectantly. He is a good master who rewards his own. But we must not think that it is only good work that receives recompense. Bad work receives something too. Read verse 25 with me back in Colossians. Verse 25, chapter 3. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now here we have the law of retribution, and this shockingly applies to Christians. What? Applies to us too? We see on this negative side of our passage that whatever we do as workers that's wrong will be paid back in kind. The parallel passage to this one, Ephesians 6, 8, Paul actually uses the positive and he says, whatever good anyone does, speaking to slaves, that he will receive back from the Lord. Both of these statements have a rejoinder to them, the one in Colossians and in Ephesians. God shows no partiality, Colossians 3.25, Ephesians 6, 8, whether he is slave or free. God's not partial regarding your position. God does not dictate his response to a person's deeds based on their status in life or their position. You could be working the lowliest of jobs or the highest of jobs. It doesn't matter. It's our deeds, good or bad, that bring his response. Friends, this is critical to understand. We read elsewhere that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Jesus says that whatever we measure out to others will be measured back to us. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema judgment seat. That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now wait a minute. If Christ has paid the price for our sin on the cross, and we have confessed and received forgiveness of our sins, then what can such verses mean to us? What do these verses mean to us? Well, they do teach that we will be judged, even as Christians, but will not be judged on the basis of our sins. Rather, we'll be judged by our works. This is known as the Bema Seat Judgment, and is not to be confused with the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, when all unforgiven, unsaved sinners are condemned to hell. Um, one website describes the Bema Seat as this. It says, the concept of the Bema Seat comes from the ancient Olympics where a judge would sit on the Bema seat at the finish line. The judge's purpose was to determine what position the runners came in, first, second, and so on, and then to give out the appropriate rewards. That is the imagery behind what is known as the Bema seat, the Bema seat judgment. What we do in this life will have an effect on our eternity. God created us to do good works and actually has a lifetime of good works for us to do, right? Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for these. We'll not, we will not be condemned for ignoring good works or doing bad works, but we will lose out on eternal rewards. 
God still cares very much about the good or worthless deeds that you and I do. Our heavenly inheritance is affected by the quality of our work on earth. And here's a key principle. We don't work to obtain our inheritance, but we work to improve upon it. Again, that might sound, well, then am I working? No, but we see straight from the scriptures that working does not obtain it, but we can work to improve upon it. It's a proper biblical motivation. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Your work today is to be motivated by your eternal rewards, in part. By your eternal rewards. Not what you're going to get today. That's all going to die with you. But your eternal rewards will not. David recognizes this about his, internal, about his eternal inheritance. Psalm 16, 5-6 says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The Lord was David's portion in hope. He rested in the delightful inheritance that was coming to him one day. What is your hope set upon in your work? What are you working for? Are you working just for a paycheck, just for retirement? Students, just for good grades? That shouldn't be it in an ultimate sense. That shouldn't be it. If you internalize that God is your ultimate master, you'll work for him and seek his reward. That's good and right. This is honoring to him. We need this perspective. We need to work for the Lord expectantly expectantly. Now, these first three perspectives are all aimed at the employee, slave, if you will, in the, in the text. This last perspective is aimed at masters or employers or professors. Perspective number four, work for the Lord with equity. Chapter four, verse one, work for the Lord with equity. The first three principles obviously clearly apply to masters too, but this one uniquely applies to them. I know we have some business owners in here, and this very uniquely applies to you. Look at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Masters, grant to your slaves or employees justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Well, justice and fairness are the key words here. And justice is pretty easy to grasp. Pretty easy to grasp from the Greek. It's the uh, command that employers essentially need to follow the laws laid down for them, the laws laid down by the government. There were actually Roman laws protecting slaves. Paul says essentially, obey those laws. Obey those laws. Employers today, obey the government's laws about how you must interact with and treat your employees. The latter word is fairness. Fairness. Now, our society today likes to demand equality, saying equality is what is fair. We must have equality, right? We hear that cry a lot. But that is not what the Greek word here actually envisions. The Greek word envisions Equity. That's what the Christians should shout. Equity. Our God stands for equity. So, Stephen, what's the difference? Equity versus equality. How do we, how do we, what, what are we talking about here? Just think of a, think of a turkey and a turkey dinner, right? And we've got, uh, we've got Grandma Lois, we've got teenager Ryan, and we've got toddler Sophia. And you're going to cut up the turkey. Equality would be giving a pound of meat to Grandma Lois, Grandma Ryan, or teenager Ryan, and toddler Sophia giving them all the exact same size, even if the, the you know, grandma and toddler can't quite gozzle that all down. Equity is giving them what they each need and what's fair, 
right? You give a little portion to Sophia, two pounds to Ryan, and a little bit to Grandma. That's the difference. Employers are to treat their employees with equity, not necessarily equality. Equality would require that employers treat every one of their employees the same, giving them each equal accolades, equal promotions, and equal paychecks despite various abilities in their work. That's not what God calls for. He calls for equity, which means fairness, impartiality, just dealings. Each person treated with respect, but different roles receive different tasks and different remuneration. And by way of application, it's also important to consider that Paul's writing to Christian slaves and also writing to Christian masters. Now, if you think about it, not all Christian slaves would have Christian masters, and not all Christian masters would have only Christian slaves. And so Paul's writing to the masters saying, look, you've got to treat all your slaves equitably. I almost said equally. It would work, but equitably. Christian slaves should not receive greater benefits over, their non-Christian, uh, over the non-Christian slaves. Christian employers, here today, be careful that you don't give special treatment to your Christian employees at the, lack of, uh, at the detriment of the others. You may have a deeper relationship with them. That's fine. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope you have a deeper relationship with them. But don't let that be a reason for favoring them. In all things work-related, treat them, pay them, and promote them like any other employee in their position. Christian teachers, treat your students with equity. Grade their papers and exams as their work and answers deserve, not on how much you like the student or not, or whether they're a Christian or not. Equity is key. Why? Because verse 4-1, at the end of the verse, says, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You too have a master in heaven. The masters then, employers now, you're still working for someone else. You're still working for someone above you. Treat everyone with equity. All Christians are slaves of Christ. We are all under the same master. Do you want God to be just and fair with you? Be just and fair to others. Be just and fair to others. Now, friends, whether you're an employer or an employee, a parent, a student, or even retired, your work You are to work in whatever you do for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your master. Have you fully grasped that reality? You need to internalize that God is your master in order to honor him with your work. Now I want to close with a story to to bring this home. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist who worked with explosives. He made his fortune by inventing dynamite and other powerful explosives, which were bought by governments to produce weapons. When Nobel's brother died, one newspaper accidentally printed Alfred's obituary instead. He was described as a man who became rich from enabling people to kill each other in unprecedented quantities. Shaken from this assessment, Nobel resolved to use his fortune to reward accomplishments that benefited humanity, including what we now know as the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel had a rare opportunity to look at the assessment of his work toward the close of his life, but to still be alive and have the opportunity to change that assessment. Let's put ourselves in Nobel's place. Let's consider the evaluation of our own work, not as written by uninformed or biased men, but as an onlooking angel might write it from heaven's point of view. Let's look at it carefully. 
Nobel strove to change the outcome of his earthly reward and legacy, and he, in fact, succeeded. By the power of Christ in you, you can strive to change the outcome of your heavenly inheritance, your heavenly reward. The moment after we die, we will each know exactly how we should have lived and worked. But it'll be too late then to go back and live here over again. Thankfully, God's given this passage so we don't have to wait until we die to know how we should have worked as for the Lord and not for men. Let's go from here today and work for the Lord, not for men. Let's pray. God above, gracious master, so kind to forgive, so helpful in our weaknesses. God, I just pray that we would be men and women who strive to honor you in our deeds and in our day at work. God, it's so important that we represent you, that we, that we hold high uh, the image of Christ in our work as we intermix with those around us. God, I pray for us as a church body that we would be uh, just a fragrance uh, of love and grace and hard work, Lord, to those around us uh, as we work and as we go about our day. God, we, we thank you for your word that doesn't leave us in the dark. It does instruct us on how, on how to work, on how to, to think about our work. And I pray that, Lord, that this would, would lodge itself in my own mind and in the minds of uh, these, these dear people here. God, we lift you high and we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.